as we sang that song, Because He Lives, uh, any song like that from that era, uh, I'm always reminded of my father, and I can almost hear his voice singing, uh, even though he's been gone for a number of years. Uh, he used to be in a quartet, and uh, it, it reminded me that this is Mother's Day, and uh, a number of our people are obviously away, uh, most likely visiting mothers and, and grandmothers, but it hit me that there's probably some of you even here today, and your mother's are, are no longer uh, on this earth, uh, and maybe you have memories of a grandmother or a, uh, an aunt who has since passed, uh, and uh, the, this may not be the happiest of days. It could bring back sad thoughts, and, and my prayer is that, that God would flood your mind with, with memories and, and happy thoughts and of the legacy that your mother, uh, like my mom, has left and uh, your grandmothers and, and aunts and, and other uh, very significant women uh, in your life in the past who, who had such an impact uh, on your life. And so I just thought uh, we, should, we should mention that and be sensitive to the fact that there's some here who I know just recently have lost uh, some significant mothers uh, in their life. Where was God? That's a paralyzing question. It's a tough question. And maybe for some of you, it's a very personally relevant question. I was talking to someone this week, and we were talking about another individual, a follower of Jesus who's struggling with their faith. And I asked the question, well, why is this person struggling? And the response was, Because as this person looks around her and sees all the struggle and the trials and the injustices in this world, and even as this person looks at her own life and the struggles and the trials that she's gone through, she wonders where is God's hand in all of this? And it made me think of some of the stories that I've shared with you over the last number of weeks Stories that encourage me of people who have held their faith despite the the trials and the difficulties that they found themselves in. And we've talked about Corey and Betsy Ten Boom, and we've talked about Esther Ann Kim. We've talked about Christians even today in in countries like North Korea uh, who struggle each day living out their faith in a a country uh, that they live in that is so in opposition to their faith uh, last week I shared the story of Darlene Debler, and if you remember, she was uh, newly married and a missionary with her husband, and they went overseas during World War II, and they were cap- captured by the Japanese, and they were put in separate work camps. And uh, how, uh, especially Darlene was such an example to those who were suffering and dying around her in, these, in this work camp, how she was an example even to the, the guards and, and the people that worked at these concentration camps who would have been seen uh, as the enemy. Uh, and she refused to give up hope, and she refused to give up her joy. And even after receiving that devastating news that her husband uh, had passed away and she hadn't even a chance to even be with him or to see him before he died, uh, she, she made a commitment to God that she would continue to trust him, that she would continue to follow him, that she would continue to rejoice in God, despite all that had gone on. And I ask that question that that some of us probably wonder where that kind of faith comes from. But maybe some of us think that's just crazy. 
all these people who have given their life to service of God, and yet this is the end result. Some of us question, how can you be expected to find joy, to find reason to rejoice in those kind of stories? I could have told you about five young missionaries. Ed McCulley, Roger Uterin, Nate Saint, Pete Fleming, and of course, Jim Elliott. Five young missionaries. I believe Nate Saint was the oldest, 32. Uh, Each with young wives, young kids. One of the wives was pregnant. And they were missionaries in Ecuador. And they felt that God was calling them to spread the gospel of Jesus to a tribe in Ecuador that was known for its viciousness, for its brutality. The Auca tribe. And so sensing God's call, they set up camp on Palm Beach, just outside of the village of this tribe. And they did numerous things to try to make contact with this tribe. And eventually, two or three of the tribe's people came, and they had friendly contact. And Nate Saint, who was a pilot, actually took some of them up uh, in his plane to show them what it was like to be in a plane. And they really felt that they were making progress. And on, I think it was the sixth day, the tribe's people came again. And two women came out of the bush, and, and the five missionaries approached them uh, when all of a sudden they suddenly realized it was an ambush and a bunch of the warriors from the tribe came out. And these missionaries had made a promise to each other that because these tribes people didn't know Jesus, they wouldn't use the guns that they had with them to kill them. And that day, all five of them were speared to death. Where was God's hand in all of that? This morning we continue looking at 1 Peter, and and as we know, Peter's writing this letter to these Christians who are being persecuted because of their faith, and he's encouraging them and teaching them how to live out their faith in a world that's hostile towards that very faith. He wants them not just to survive, he wants them to thrive in the midst of a hostile to to their faith world that they were living in. And we saw that that Peter isn't teaching them how to avoid suffering. He isn't teaching them how to live out their faith in a way that those who would hurt them wouldn't find out about their faith. Rather, Peter says entirely different things. He says that if you are a Christian and you're boldly living out your faith, expect to suffer for that very faith. Because suffering is part and parcel of the Christian experience. And that God will use that suffering. He will use those trials that come because of living out our faith in a hostile world. And he'll use those trials to grow us and to to teach us and to equip us and to minister to others and, and even to reach others with the good news of Jesus. And then perhaps most radically, we've seen that Peter says that even in the midst of these trials and this suffering, we can experience joy. And so the question that we've been considering over the last number of weeks is what's the secret to joy in suffering? What reason does Peter have to call us to rejoice even in the midst of extreme trial? And so the passage that we've been looking at for these last number of weeks is 1 Peter 1. uh, And uh, we've been looking at verses 3 through verse 9. So I'd encourage you to turn 
in your scriptures uh, to that passage. And once again, someone read out the Pew Bible number so that we can all uh, have the opportunity to be following along. 980. So 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And each week I've reminded you of some very important things to keep in mind as we consider this text. First of all, Peter's premise, his his underlying assumption. Christians who boldly live out their faith will experience opposition. Expect to find yourself in various kinds of trials that will result in suffering. Secondly, understand the kind of trials that Peter is specifically talking about here. Because as I've said, when we consider the secrets to joy and suffering, the the different steps that Peter's going to lay out for us, uh, they work regardless of the trial you find yourself in. No matter what the kind of suffering and why your suffering is. But the specific trials that Peter's talking about here is suffering as a result of your faith. That's what his readers were experiencing. They were suffering all kinds of opposition and persecution. They were fleeing. They were being alienated. They were being physically hurt. Some of them were being thrown in prison. Some even met their death because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And then the third thing is to understand the difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is dependent upon circumstances. Joy is something much deeper and more profound. It comes from God, and it's a result of our finding satisfaction in God. In the fact that God is faithful to His promises. That He is perfect. That He is good. That He is holy. That He does what He says that He will do. And when our satisfaction is found in God... We can have joy no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in. And so we've asked this question, what is the secret to joy and suffering? And the first thing that we've seen over the last couple of weeks is that the first step, and to me the pivotal step, is to focus on the greatness of your salvation. And Peter knows that if his readers don't grasp how great their salvation really is, then the rest of his teaching is going to go right over their head. Or it's going to go right through them. Because if you aren't grasping the greatness of your salvation, you're not going to be too motivated to live out your faith boldly in a world where you're facing opposition. And so Peter declares to them the greatness of their salvation, that the triune God has worked together 
apart from anything that we have done, apart from any kind of worthiness, what we might think we have, that God the Father has chosen us, that the Spirit has drawn us, that Jesus has died and he has made forgiveness available. And when we put our faith in Jesus, he cleanses us and his righteousness is credited to our account. And Peter continues to talk about this great salvation. Those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we've been given a new birth. God has caused us to be born again. We are new. Everything about us is new. We have a new hope. We have a new future. We have a new destiny. We have new joy. And most importantly, we have a changed status before God. We, because of what Jesus has done and our faith in that, can have a right relationship with God. And Peter continues that we've been given a new birth and we've been brought into a living hope, a clear view of all that God has in store for us in the future. And that, that hope is guaranteed. It's made possible because of the death of Jesus and it's guaranteed, it's, it's validated by God the Father raising God the Son from the dead. And so we've been brought into a living hope and into an inheritance that can't spoil, fade, or perish. Time and circumstances can't touch it. And so those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, who have this new birth, who have this living hope, we know that we have a future in heaven, eternal life, eternal life in the kingdom of God. We have all that comes along with being joint heirs of Jesus. And we have fellowship with God himself unhindered fellowship in the future with God in heaven. And Peter then says that our very lives are protected by God. An all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God holds our lives in our hand. And Peter says, in this, you greatly rejoice. You, you leap for joy. You dance with excitement about how great a salvation we have. And if you want to experience joy in the midst of suffering, you have to grasp and, and immerse yourself and grow in the greatness of your salvation. And then we finally move in to step two. Step two, which is that we focus on eternity. Because when we focus on eternity, we're going to see that our trials and, and our suffering that results from our trials is temporary. It's brief. We can rejoice in the fact that even in the midst of the worst of trial, when we see that trial against the backdrop of eternity, against the, the backdrop of this great salvation that we have, we can know that that trial will not, cannot last forever. And, and that's not to belittle the trial. Because if you find yourself in the midst of a trial, it can seem to go on for a long time. The trials that Peter's readers were experiencing, they were real. The opposition, the persecution, the alienation, the constant looking over their shoulder, it must have seemed to go on forever for Peter's readers. And even for some of you whose, whose ministry sees you on the front lines of the Christian faith, where day after day you're presenting the message of the cross on the front lines to a world that often doesn't want to hear it. 
And you face opposition and rejection and ridicule. It must seem like it goes on forever. And even if we broaden the the scope or the range of, of, of the trial and the kind of suffering we experience. I mean, sitting at the bedside of a loved one who's ill or, or dying. Finding yourself in a marriage that's crumbling. Struggling to make ends meet every month. Having lost your job and, and, and failing to find new employment. Having trouble with one of your children. It seems to go on and on. Those trials seem like a really long time. So what does Peter mean by saying that our trials are temporary? They're brief. They're they're just for a short while. Peter's viewing them against eternity. What he's saying is that everything in this life is is brief. It's short. It's temporary in comparison to eternity. It's all a matter of perspective. And if we want to experience joy in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, we have to develop and maintain a heavenly perspective. That, that phrase, long time, it's relative. You know, in the summer when we have our pool open in our backyard, especially my son Graham loves to show me how long he can hold his breath. And he will go one lap and another lap, and I don't know how many laps he's up to now. But he can hold his breath. I don't know if it's a minute or a minute and a half. And it seems like a really long time. Like two minutes holding your breath. Uh, We had a repairman in our house this week, and he asked how long we've been in our house. And I said, I think it's around 10 years or even a bit longer. And I just thought, it's a really long time that we've been in this one house. We've had a tendency to move a lot before we moved to this place. There's a couple here, and I won't point them out. They've been married over 50 years. Some maybe are here who've been married even longer. That's a long time time. My daughter Lauren works at the Mount with with Dorothy Freeman, and and she's always telling us stories about the the sisters, the nuns, and and, uh, she was telling me one about this spry nun who's always kidding the staff, and I said, oh, she must be, I'm thinking she must be one of the younger ones there. How old is she? Oh, she's only 90. There's there's other ones that are over 100. There's one, I think, that's 104 years old. I'm going, wow, that's a long time to be alive. Eternity is a really long time. And when we view our trials and our suffering and we compare it to the long time of eternity, if that's our perspective, we can rejoice because our trials and our suffering are only brief. And as important as Adopting and and developing and maintaining an eternal perspective is, it's not always easy. A lot of us as followers of Jesus struggle to, to have that kind of eternal perspective. And there's reasons, there's obstacles to maintaining a, an eternal perspective. One is that we we live our life with a lack of anticipation and eagerness and excitement towards heaven and all that it entails. 
We're, we're leaving for Myrtle Beach this Friday. And every one of my children remind me every day that there's only so many days until we leave. There is such excitement about our trip to Myrtle Beach. And there's things that they're going to be leaving behind. Both Jack and Graham have their first baseball game the week that we're away. They're going to miss that. Lauren and Natalie are having to give up shifts at work. They're going to miss that money. But there's such an anticipation and excitement to go to Myrtle Beach. Those things are so trivial. Imagine if we had that kind of eagerness and anticipation towards heaven and the future and all that God has in store for us. It's not that life here isn't important and that the things we're involved are, are, are in are, are bad or aren't good. But we got such a glorious future ahead of us. And it really challenged me this week as I thought about this. Especially as, a, as an elder here, as a, as a leader, as someone who teaches God's word to you. And this challenge is for all of you who are in leadership positions. It's so important not only that we teach and model what it looks like how to live our faith well in a world that's hostile towards our faith. But it's important that, that we teach and we model what it looks like to have an anticipation for heaven. And to be living life in such a way that we are eager for what God has in store. I think of Paul when he said, to live is Christ. There's so much that God wants me to do here. But to die is gain. Listen to the words of Jim Elliott, that missionary uh, in Ecuador. This was his final entry in his diary that was found on the beach. Uh, where the dead bodies of the missionaries was found. He wrote this the morning that he would have been killed. I walked out to the hill just now. It is exalting, delicious, to stand embraced by the shadows of a friendly tree with the wind tugging at your coattail and the heavens hailing your heart to gaze in glory and give oneself again to God. What more could a man ask? Oh, the fullness, pleasure, sheer excitement of knowing God on earth. I care not if I never raise my voice again for him. If only I may love him, please him. Perhaps in mercy he shall give me a host of children, i.e. converts, that I may lead them through the vast star fields to explore his delicacies whose finger ends set them to burning. But if not... If only I may see him, touch his garments, and smile into his eyes. Oh, then, not stars nor children shall matter, only him himself. Oh, Jesus, master and center and end of all, how long before that glory is yours, which has so long awaited you? Now there is no thought of you among men. Then there shall be thought for nothing else. Now other men are praised. Then none shall care for any other merits. Hasten, hasten, glory of heaven. Take your crown. Subdue your kingdom. Enthrall your creatures. That's a heavenly perspective. How do, how do we develop 
that kind of heavenly perspective, especially when there's those obstacles. One of the other obstacles that I didn't mention was living life with an earthly perspective. Some of us have a really finely tuned, well-developed earthly perspective where, where we live life as if our job and our hobbies and our family and our relationships and, and, and our favorite places to be and, and our retirement is all that really matters. That we look forward only to tomorrow or the next day or, or the next milestone. We live with a, a kind of spiritual short-sightedness where we see it's, it's this earth which is, really, is what really matters, what, what really counts. Not so much heaven and, and eternity. And we fail to see that God's preparing us now for eternity. And so how do we overcome these obstacles? My first answer is go back to step one. Focus on the greatness of your salvation. Because if you don't grasp the greatness of the salvation that you enjoy, if you're a child of God, your trials are going to really seem like a long time. And you won't get the fact that they're only brief compared to eternity because you're not even thinking about eternity. You're just thinking about that trial that you find ourselves in. We have to grasp and grow and immerse ourselves in the greatness of our salvation. And the second thing I would suggest is that we need to grasp what Scripture has to say about eternity for everyone. Because those of us who are followers of Jesus, Scripture says there is a time coming where there will be no more trials. There's a time coming where suffering will end. Paul says our suffering, it's light and momentary compared to the eternal glory that we are going to experience and that we are going to enjoy. We have a glorious future in store. No more suffering. No more trials. But not so much. In fact, not at all for those who don't know Jesus, who don't put their faith in what Jesus has done for them. Those who don't know Jesus, they may go through life and, and experience relatively little suffering. They may prosper greatly. But Scripture tells us time and time again that their suffering will continue through eternity. And the scripture writers try to find different ways to describe the greatest suffering that anyone can experience, which will come to those who don't put their faith in Jesus. And that is eternal separation from the presence of God. It's described as the great lake of fire, eternal punishment, and a number of other horrific phrases that describe what it will be like for those who don't put their trust in Jesus and if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, that isn't your joy. What will happen to those who don't put their faith in Jesus? And sometimes, forgive us, I think we live like it is. Rather, that should be our motivation. To grab on to that eternal perspective. To grab on to the vision of this local church which is to work together to see those who don't know Jesus to come to Jesus. It should be our motivation to put our faith on the front lines. 
And then Peter brings us to another step. Grasp the greatness of your salvation. Focus on eternity. And then thirdly, focus on the purpose of your trials. See, we can rejoice knowing that there is a purpose for the trials and the suffering that we experience. Peter says literally, if necessary, for a short while. Let me, let's look at the verse instead of me just repeating it. Verse 6, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. The NIV kind of waters it down a little bit. The, the Greek literally says, if necessary, for a little while you suffer. Karen Job, who's probably written the finest commentary on 1 Peter, writes that the grammar tells us that, that Peter is not setting up suffering and trials for those who live out their faith boldly as, as just a possible occurrence. But rather, when you choose Jesus Christ, you are setting yourself against a world that hasn't chosen Jesus. And so don't be surprised when you find yourself in a number of trials and that you're suffering because of your faith. But we can rejoice knowing that God has a purpose. God has a purpose for allowing and sometimes even sending trials into our experience. We can know that they don't happen by accident. They're not haphazard. They're not random acts of faith, but rather God is in control even in our trials. Nothing happens without a reason. And even though we may not be able to figure out the reason why certain things happen this side of eternity, our faith can survive knowing that there is a reason why we find ourselves in certain trials. Now, I can think of nothing more difficult as a father when it comes to my children than watching them try to achieve something that they're failing at. That they're so discouraged that they want to give up. They want to quit. And there's part of me that says, yes, please quit. <laughs> but we know that that's not the right answer. And so we tell them, no, keep at it, keep at it. And we watch them fail. And we want to pick up the pen. Or we want to get on the computer and start typing. Or we want to pick up that, that sports instrument and help them out. But we don't because we know that as they struggle and then they persevere, it develops character and they become better and they become stronger and they become more equipped. I, I think of Graham and T-ball when he first started. Graham could barely hit the ball off the tee. And I was afraid of the dental work that was going to be needed when he tried to catch a ball. And, and how close he would come if there was a pop fly to him in the outfield. And yet now I'm looking forward to this year because Graham can catch and throw and he can really hit the ball hard and it's not even on a tee anymore. It's actually, it's actually getting pitched to him. And, and God, our, our Heavenly Father, allows us and even sends trials into our experience because he knows that they're necessary. He knows that there is a reason and a purpose that these things take place in our experience. And we know that God could shield us from those things. He, he could orchestrate things that we never have to suffer 
But he doesn't. Because he knows that there's a purpose. And, and what, what is the purpose? Why, why are us going through trials? Why is it necessary? Well, Peter gives us some reasons. And, and the next time together, we're going to look at the main reason that he talks about. It's a real key part to this passage. Is that trials test and purify our faith. And we'll look at that in a bit, but there's other reasons. It, it, it confronts sin in our life and, and turns us to obedience. And I think of one of the greatest trials in my ministry over the years was quite a few years ago when I felt God was calling me out of my career to become a church planter. Quite excited about it, only to realize that God put me through that so he could confront a sin in my life. And, and, and to turn me to an even deeper sense of obedience. God uses trials to, to build character. You, I'll, I'll challenge you. you. Look into the life of any person, man or woman, who you see as a godly individual. And I will guarantee you that their life has been marked with trials and suffering. God uses trials to equip us for ministry. And one of the mysteries of, of Christianity is that God brings comfort through broken people. The God, it's like he builds a reservoir and those who have been broken, who have been brought to their knees, who've screwed up and turned to God in obedience and, and who have experienced all kinds of different suffering and he builds a reservoir and fills it with grace so that that person can then minister and pour out God's grace and the wisdom that has come from God into another person's experience. And so it's through our brokenness, it's through our suffering that God is building up counselors and prayer warriors and, and mentors and teachers and equippers. That's the mystery of how God works. And, and then finally, and I'm going to close with this, God uses our trials and our suffering to carry out his purposes. What a day it is going to be when we get to heaven and we start connecting the dots and we see all that God has been orchestrating through the things that we view now and go, where was God's hand? Zach, I didn't tell him to share that thing about Humboldt, but what a perfect example. Remember the, 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 the chaplain, if you saw his sermon, I don't know why. I don't know where God's hand was, but he's still on the throne. And he's orchestrating. And people are coming to faith. I heard a story on a radio a couple of weeks ago of a Christian in a Muslim country who was confronted by an ISIS soldier. And he said to the ISIS soldier, I know you're going to kill me, but please first take my Bible. And the ISIS soldier took his Bible and then he shot and killed that Christian. That ISIS soldier took the Bible home and read it and he's now a follower of Jesus proclaiming the gospel in a country where he is risking his very life for it. I told you the story about Darlene Deep Debler, who was such an inspiration in that Japanese work camp. The commander of that Japanese work camp, because of the face of Darlene Debler and her example, gave his life to Jesus Christ. And we all know the story about Jim Elliott and those four missionaries. Not too long after it was discovered that those five missionaries had been killed, Hundreds of people committed their life to become missionaries. Thousands of people started giving to fund the missionary efforts in that very place. Several of the family members of those missionaries who were murdered committed their life 
to serving those very people. Seven of the tribesmen who were directly involved in the murder of those missionaries gave their life to Jesus Christ. Not too long after, the whole tribe had given their life to Jesus Christ. And since then, thousands and thousands of people have heard the message of Jesus Christ because of a senseless, at least that's what we thought it was, tragedy. Five guys willing to live their life, to put their faith on the line, and to be murdered within six days of what they thought God was calling them to do. And God is just weaving this masterpiece based on on, on the suffering that those five men experienced. You want to experience joy and suffering. Grasp the greatness of your salvation. Focus on eternity. Develop an eternal perspective. And then realize that God has a purpose for the things that he's putting you through and allowing you to experience. And if we are faithful, God will use those things, which may seem horrible at the time, to bring himself glory and to be able to say to you when you get into the doors of heaven, well done, well done. Daryl, why don't we uh, continue here?